Hello, Charter Folk. Delighted to be starting our first Charter Folk chat of 2021. And we really have a terrific group of folks uh, to be with us. Um, we'll bring them on right now as I begin introductions. Uh, we have three great folks. Uh, we have with us Darrell Bradford, who is our first return um, guest to um, Charter Folk chat. Uh, Darrell um, does so many important things um, across uh, uh, across the country, but is executive director, uh, executive vice president, or vi vi senior vice president at uh, 50CAN. Um, we also have um, uh, Pat Brantley, who is the CEO of Friendship Schools in in DC, uh, where I believe there's like 15 or 16 campuses uh, in DC, and uh, have just made a huge mark in our nation's capital. And then we have Diane Tavener, who is the CEO of uh, Summit Public Schools, with um, I think it's eight schools in the Bay Area and three in Washington, um, and then have uh, has also been working on so many things across the country to support teachers uh, and parents um, with uh, new ideas about how to uh, take on instruction along the way, you know, writing books that we all read. And, um, you know, uh, I will also re reference that um, Diane was the CEO of the California Charter School Association and, um, uh, helped me at levels that I still call Diane and thank her for in retrospect. And um, and Pat is serving as the board chair in Washington, D.C. Um, so thank you to both you guys for the incredible things that you guys do for kids. But then thank you for also modeling for the rest of our movement how important it is to take on those uh, thankless leadership roles within our advocacy organizations. Um, I wanted to start today by... Um, uh, trying to kind of mix two things together. You know, one is um, I am positing that there is something unusual. There is something new um, that is happening in public education. You always run this risk. Oh, this is the year of, and then add your superlative, right? We've never had blah, 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 right? Um, and yet um, I believe that it is legitimate to say that there has never been um, a year like 2021. I think that 2020 in, in retrospect will be seen as that year where we got, it's a very well numbered year, 2020 clarity. We were able to see things that we have not been able to see before, you know, right? 2021 becomes the year, do we have our acts together and are we starting to do new things um, based upon what we've been able to see? I think that, uh, and what we, if I were to, you know, describe the overall situation, it's a fundamental disconnect, the great disconnect as I've described in some recent posts between what our public schools are offering and not what our parents want or not what society wants, but the bare minimum that people will accept. What helped me crystallize these thoughts was talking to incredibly smart people last year, including Durrell. And Durrell surfaced one of, one of the most interesting uh, comments, and I will, you know, link it again. I think it's at the 3050 mark or something like that in the in the chat that we did in November, where I was ready to go on to another topic, and then Darrell said, "I'm going to be a jerk. I'm going to be a jerk, Jet." And then he, and then he, you know, inserted this idea, and I'm just like, Darrell, you know, if that's the measure of being a jerk, all right, you know, bring your jerkness, you know, uh, you know, to to whole new levels. But you basically posited in that comment, you know, or in that in that in that statement that that COVID has changed the game, right? And there is this critical need to do new things. And if charter schools want to be able to position ourselves for the longer term to be stronger, it is absolutely critical that we innovate and be able to do what those new things are. Um, so I thought I would start, you know, by just coming back to you, Darrell, and seeing if you want to just revisit those comments and amplify them. The one thing I would say is the one thing that you didn't mention in there was just how there's also this layer of, of racial reckoning that happened in 2020, where there's just, uh, I think, um, an additional element of, we just will not accept what we've historically had. So do you mind just getting us started, Darrell? Revisit those comments and take it in whatever direction, you know, your jerkness wants to. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, so so A, uh, thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you you the, the list of people you can invite is so short that I got to come back. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and uh, and it is like, 
I mean, I've been I've been inside for like ever. You know, I'm like I'm like the good guy on the East Coast. So it is just nice to talk to people that I don't normally talk. So so thanks for for having me back. Um, just like a a, a couple things on that. So so um, at the time when, when we were talking about this, I, I I think I was sort of saying like, look, um, deconstruct chart chart what charter schools are from the public policy power to create public schools that districts do not run. Um, and that the, the latter, right, and, and, and the former too, I'll get to the former in a second, is actually um, a tool that can help us, A, like make some better political friends, and, and B, actually solve genuine problems and challenges for families in the, in, in the COVID crisis, right? I was talking to a friend of mine who um, runs this organization called A for Arizona in Arizona yesterday, and she was talking about how they have a, um, a committee member who is um, wants to do kind of like an innovation bill and but but sort of wants to anchor it in what public schools do, like traditional public schools, like not public charter schools, whatever. And I was kind of like, look, you know, it's not like there aren't any uh, traditional district school leaders across the country, right, who who've done a good job. Um, and I would say that the, um, the the biggest problem for those districts is that they don't have charter-like freedom and autonomy, right? So you, you and you like you know, March twelfth, I think is what it was. That was like the last time I flew, and I remember I was in Georgia, and uh, you guys know I'm like I'm on the board of Success Academy, and even Moskowitz has, has like we're, we're closing, we're going virtual on Monday, and I called her up and I was like, you're awesome, right? And it was great to be able to like make that decision, you know? And then like Monday, we were, we were standing up Success Academy virtual or, or she was and I was cheering her on, you know, while New York City Public Schools were still like trying to figure out what it was gonna do and who it was gonna point a finger at and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, so the, uh, the one thing I think is really important is that it's like, um, they're, they're great people everywhere and we need great people everywhere who are gonna try to solve this problem. But the flexibility, freedom, pop, you know, like uh, ability to change, to adapt, that is inherent in the public policy toolbox of charter schooling, right, is the most powerful thing about charter schooling right now. Um, and that the use of that power, right, other than getting families and kids, you know, with, with like the education that they want and deserve, um, is also an important way, I think, to help us build a better, more diverse new political constituency. Now, here's the second thing about that that I think is, is really is sort of really important. And um, uh, just to go back to, to, to reference another episode of Charter Folk with, with Kim Smith, um, I've thought the same thing, but not said it as elegantly, which should not surprise you. Um, but, you know, there's like a stated preference and it is a revealed preference about school. And I think what we found, especially given <laughs> 55 million kids are, are at home, maybe learning, you know, at, uh, uh, at, at this point, is that uh, parents said they cared about academics, but they but what they really cared about was the childcare. Um, even wealthy parents, right, were basically willing to say, look, I'll pay through the nose. I got this mortgage on my back, right, to get into this school. It ain't that good, but it's mine. And more importantly, I'll double down on museums, trips, tutoring, and all this other stuff to cover up sort of the built-in mediocrity of my neighborhood school, which is mine, right? Now, like what you saw in like Arlington and these other places, the people are like, wait, you tell me you're not gonna watch my kid? Well, hold on, hold on. Give me my money back, right? <laughs> Give me my money back. And then all of a sudden there are all these people who who were who were not sort of like, you know, thinking about alternatives, you know, private schools, charter schools, like interdistrict virtual, like why is it that school across the street has kids in person, but mine does not? Like they they approach that differently. And then all of a sudden, you know, the deal was altered, like a, like sort of Vader and Lando in a, in Empire. Um, and so I, I set all that up just to say that like it's kind of an interesting thing to think about this question of like do like doing innovation, innovation for, for what reason? And and certainly like not just for the sake of innovation at this point, like given the the, the crisis that our children are in and, and the state they're they're learning is in overall. Um, the one thing I would just sort of throw out to everybody is that um, you know, if you like date somebody and then like like you in high school right? And then you go on your hoity-toity trip to France or whatever. And then you come back and you see the person, you see it again. You're different people, 
right? You, you sort of want different things. And so to me, like 55 million uh, kids in America have been on a date with somebody else that is not their neighborhood public school, right? And when they come back, they're gonna want different things, right? They're, they're, gonna, they're gonna want different things. And so I think that's a huge challenge to um, traditional district schools, obviously, because you have all these people that were on a, a loop that they knew and understood and it was predictable. And then they come back and say, hey, I've been learning at seven o'clock in the, in the evening for the last six months. Like, like so what, what is this, right? So people need to be ready for that. And then I think the other thing is that the fact that people will want different things also challenges us to give them the things that they want, right? And so yeah. you know, we're in a, in a you know, the, these are like Diane, Pat, like you guys run organizations that are about learning, improvement, and like, you know, uh, reiterating and, and doing new things. And, and I think it's a mistake to think that we would be sort of um, uh, not also uh, under that pressure to give yeah. people like the new things that they want after their their time away from everything. So again, thank thank you for having me. I'm I'm happy thank to be back with your smart friends. So. <laughs> thank you, Darrell. I don't I don't know um, someone who I learn as much from while simultaneously being entertained as I do you. It's just it's a special gift you got. So thank you for being back again. Um, hey. Um, I, I don't really, uh, let's just turn to Diane. Di Diane, can you just, uh, no parameters other than what I did in terms of introducing you know, uh, Darrell's comments. What reactions do you have and where do you think we stand at this at this moment as we, as we dive into this topic? Thanks, Jen. It's um, good to be here and um, fun to be in conversation with all of you. And um, I actually love what Darrell just said. And I, I mean, I think what I would offer maybe, and I'll be curious to hear what he thinks is even a little bit more nuance on, uh, about his comments. I completely agree that what uh, the pandemic has revealed is the number one want and need from parents is childcare for their for their kids. And let's just pause for a moment and say, that's that's a, that's emotionally hard for educators. I don't know a teacher and a school leader who thinks of themselves as like a, a daycare or a childcare provider. That's not why we do it. It's not why we go there. And so I think there's a lot of emotion around that realization in this time. Um, and I think it's something that we collectively have to to come to terms with because even if that's what we have been doing, we've not been doing it terribly well, right? Like childcare, if I were gonna design it, I would not design it to be from like 8.30 to three, with a half day, one day, like it's not good for families the way that it is, it could be better. And I would argue that one of the values that charters have brought, a lot of them, is better care, like extended hours, extended time, you know, more flexibility, more responsibility, more responsiveness to families. The second piece I would add is I think that, um, you know, I would make a friendly amendment and say the, the next thing that families are looking for is schools that don't close doors for their kids and make sure that they have opportunity. And so I think a lot of what we see in terms of friction between parents and, and schools is when they feel like the school is not enabling their child to have a pathway to what they want. Um, obviously, you know, families who are advocating for their children in um, with special needs are in constant, you know, friction with schools around, are you blocking my child's ability to learn and grow and get certifications and things like that? And so I think um, a lot of what parents are looking for next after childcare is just don't you know, the school system controls my child's trajectory and destiny, and I need a school that's not going to block what I want for my child. Um, that's, again, a pretty sad realization. Like, they're not expecting us to help them get there necessarily. Just don't block us, don't stop us, don't prevent us from that. And then I think the third piece is, and as Darrell said, oh, by the way, we actually want our, our child to learn and grow. And we don't have very high expectations from our school for that. And so we're, we, we outsource that a lot. Um, I think one thing that has become very clear during the pandemic, we, we've been doing a lot of work with prepared parents in supporting parents and offering supports and whatnot is the vast majority of parents do not want to be their child's educator. 
And so certainly, you know, a lot of people talk about the homeschooling. There is not going to be a massive flood to homeschooling here. People don't want to be their kid's teacher and their educator. They want someone else to do that. They don't have high expectations right now for the schools to do that. But I think they're starting to get pretty angry about that, quite frankly. And I think the shift is they can see now what's been going on there. So before, great, I'm sending my child to school, I'm getting childcare, you know, and now when it's coming home and they see what was actually going on, I mean, I talked to a mom this past weekend who was like, when I saw what they were sending for my, I'm like, nope, not doing that. Nope, not doing that. And the mom turned to me and said, my child lives on a farm. She is learning real world skills. She is learning how to be a person in the society. I'm not doing that stuff. And so I think their parents are going to be much more discriminating. Um, this is not nearly as like fun or entertaining as the way Darrell says it, but much more discriminating when they come out of the pandemic about uh, maybe picking and choosing what they will and won't take from the school, given you know what they, and then out figuring out how to get it from somewhere else because they've had to become resourceful on that front, which I would say leads us to a huge opportunity as charter schools, because I agree completely with Darrell that we have as much as those freedoms and autonomy are being encroached upon and shrunk, shrunken, uh, whatever the right word is there um, in this time, we still have more, um, opportunity to meet our families where they need us to be. Um, and so I see one of my hopes, and I really hope I'm not disappointed because so far I kind of am, is that we seize this moment to actually deliver <laughs> to families. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you, Diane. Um, Pat would love to just give general parameters. I will just also, um, uh, put out there for for you know uh, viewers who might not be aware of it that friendship has been at the forefront in DC pushing itself as an organization to do those additional things that parents in DC need and then also you've been key in terms of rallying the entire charter community interface with the mayor's team uh, to set up some dynamics in DC that have just been absolutely uh, I think important for kids and families to receive that support but also for people to understand that charter schools are really making a constructive contribution, both within our unit, within our sphere, but pushing the overall system to do some really positive things. So um, put that additional context there for you, and then please go where you would like to with your comments. Thank you, thank you. You know, I don't wanna occupy the space of jerk in this because I mean, we've got, we've got one person who's doing that right now, but there's just so much to unpack, right? From what was just said. And, and I wanna start with this idea that our kids have been out on a date with someone else and now they're coming back, they're gonna want something different. Look, that might be true, but the people handling the arranged marriage, their parents and the village of their school people are driving in the same way toward the same things that we've always had. And how we break that up is really what we've got to figure out, right? As I am with groups of educators and talking to parents about how we bring kids back and how we recover, a lot of the conversation drives toward delivering what it was we just did before yeah. we went out on break. A lot of it does. And, and I'm not sure that any of the adults should drive this. I think that the kids is to your point, Gerald, the kids that have said, I've seen something different when we surveyed them, you know, um, and yes, they're so suffering on the social emotional side. But when we surveyed them about academics and getting their work done, they're like the feedback I get from my teacher is better. I have less distractions. I can do work when it's best for me. I can move ahead if I want to. I can spend more time on something that I didn't get. They're telling us what works for them. But are we working as hard to build the systems to get what they want? So. You know, that's just something I'd say. I, I think we're moving toward the arranged marriage to do what it is that we've always done. And we're going to tell kids, you know what? This is your bow. This is what you're doing. This is the way we do it. I hope that doesn't happen. But I think one of the constraining things, and that is sort of what you laid out, um, what has been laid out, Jed, is the context for this, that you have what is being provided in terms of equity and excellence, um, 
by public systems and you have what parents want um, or what parents will tolerate and what they will accept. And when I hear the words tolerate, accept, choice, these are false to me. I, uh, to bring up um, a, a troubled person, but, but certainly um, a poet in many ways, but Kanye West, who said slavery was 400 years of choice. This isn't choice for our families, right? They're not tolerating it or accepting it. It is the only thing that they've been given. And what do we do and how do we build and, and perhaps it was, um, someone said earlier, we've got to start building the political capacity and will. For the families that many of us serve, they aren't tolerating education. They are sending their kids to the schools that are available to them. And the education that's available to them that they are compelled to do if those kids are between five and 17. And many of our families don't have the ability just to get up and move to someplace else or to get up and go private. They don't have that. So what they are taking part in every day isn't because it is choice or acceptance or tolerance. It is what we have allowed. And we've got to figure out how we get past that. I want to make um, another point. Um, when we think about school and when we think about families and when we think about um, what what they take on innovation sounds great we this country the world created vaccines faster in a way that was never done before much of of our country much of the world says those vaccines are game changers. They will let us go back to normal. We're all gonna take them. There's a group of families that are saying, no, we're not, right? Innovation reads to some people as risk. And if you've lived in a world of privilege, innovation means you can do something better, faster, you know, more interesting. It means all of those things. Innovation doesn't often mean to you that things can be worse. But many of our families know, yes, things can be worse. And so when we think about this conversation about innovate, innovate, charters are innovation, we need to innovate, right? We need to figure out how we're going to build trust, build confidence, build in the voice of the people that we are trying supposedly to serve, and then let them help us deliver something that they want to take a part of because they are comfortable with doing so. Can, can I can I hop on to that? Please, of course, please continue my jerkdom. Um, no, so 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 the um, you know last spring I think is what it was when the sort of reality of all this was kind of descending uh, upon people. I was on like a, a call of you know like lots of people who work in lots of groups that are nominally nominally like mine, and uh, and everybody was like, we got to get kids back in school. We got to get kids back in school. And I can remember really being a skunk at the garden party and saying, you know, in 2019, 18% of African-American fourth graders in this country read at or above grade level on the need, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think what, what I said is like, I ain't trying to run back to that. You know, like we, we've got to get kids out of that, you know, for, for you know, for 25 years. So like the, the desired end state, it should not be a return to, to normal. And like, as a, kind of a, not, not a challenge, but like kind of a thing that I think char charters, charter powers, you know, whatever can be, can be looking about, um, about, and I've written a bunch of stuff about like sort of bot, like authorizing principles and like inverting them to have more community voice. So like, I totally dig where you come from Pat. Um, but so it's like tutoring. So um, I'm generally supportive of the idea that we should be like tutoring everybody, right? We're probably going to do a paper that's called tutor everybody, you know? Um, but what I keep hearing is basically that the same people responsible for the 18% should be the people doing it. And we're going to organize all the regulations to make sure they're the only people who get to do it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Right? <laughs> so, so I just want to like, uh, um, you know, like, like Great Oaks, you know, for instance, is a charter school that has like a tutoring component built in, you know, um, 
at, at success, we have like a bunch of high school kids who are tutoring middle school kids, right? Like they wouldn't get a chance to do this, you know, under that. We can do that, right? Like that's, you know, so um, I just, I just want to like highlight that because like I'm, I'm 100% my, 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 my future forward take. And by the way, innovation does not poll well with, with parents. Just throw that out there too. Um, but my future forward take notwithstanding, um, I'm, I remain concerned that almost a year out of school, people have forgotten what we left, right? It's just the golden glow of what we had. It's, it's the, the safety of something you, you knew, even if it wasn't great. Um, and it's super important to always kind of like have that at the front. Like, like we don't want to go back to what we had. We want to go back to something that is significantly better, right? That meets people on terms that the old thing did not meet them upon. So. Can I just so, add something? Yes. And I have a question for Diane. So, so one thing is when I think about sort of the tutoring and the et cetera and the innovation, we're all constrained by these grants that say, oh, wait, we're only going to fund you if you show us that you're doing something that has some proof. Yeah, the proof yielded 18% of the kids who are at the fourth grade level not reading, right? So, I mean, or, or you know, only 18% are reading. So even the legislation and the regulations are constraining what you could try to do something new. Tell me to take what we've done over the last six months and create schools from that because I can show you what kids it's working for. Let me tell you, Friendship Runs the only public online school in the district, whether traditional or charter. Those kids are a year and a half ahead, right? They, they look like the rest of our student body, but they've been set up to do the work virtually. So we know we could get there with other kids. So we shouldn't come back the same. So anyway, just, just wanted to mention that. But Diane, you, you mentioned something about childcare and I found it fascinating in terms of thinking about what parents want and what they're screaming about and it's childcare. I think that we all as, as educators, as people leading educational organizations need to come to terms with this. African-American families, poor families are saying, I'm not sending my kids back. Like yeah, everybody. Right. That's oh, right. Take your child care and, you know, hit the road with it. It's other families that are talking about child care. Yeah. So is there an opportunity right now to talk about equity and to deliver to those families who say, I will figure out a way to deal with my child care so that my child stays home and what I think is safe gives me better programming? Like when in the world, when you think about the rhetoric that goes around, particularly in America, have you had a chance where you've got black families saying mm -mm, child care? No, nah. <laughs> I want better programming. And then we're well to do families are saying, wait, please watch my kid from eight. I don't know <laughs> Totally. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Pat. And that actually is reflected in our, uh, you know, schools and our students. I mean, we're in constant conversation with our families that are very diverse by design. So some it's always been incredibly diverse. Um, and, and what you're saying is, is absolutely true. Um, most of our black families are saying, you know, I don't want my child going back there. It's not safe uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and and um, you know there are are real challenges also with being at home. I think what your what your question and your comment um, suggests to me is like I'm really struggling. I'm curious your guys' thoughts with this idea, this national conversation about learning loss. And here's 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 where I think it's really uh, you know detrimental that we're we're framing the conversation as learning loss because. You know, I have a lot of families, a lot of black families who are literally thriving right now. They don't have to be out in the world. They're home as a family. They're learning together. They're connected to their extended family. They feel much safer in that space, especially in the world that we are living in right now. And yet the world is talking about how their kids are losing all of this, this learning. Um, and what it says to me is we don't value, we value math and reading scores. That's it, literally, which which is actually not necessarily learning or anything that matters to those kids. And we also don't even understand how kids learn because you don't actually need a whole year to learn something necessarily. What we know is with the right tools, the right supports, et cetera, like a child could learn in three days what might take a whole year in a classroom. Um, and so th there's this concept of loss is really problematic to me and says that we didn't 
we didn't take, we're not taking advantage of all what we could be gaining right in this moment and learning in this moment and doing in this moment. And like you, Pat, a bunch of my kids are accelerating. Why? Because they can, because we have a personalized approach, because, you know, they can work at their own pay even more than they could in our, our souls normally. They're getting better feedback, you know, all of those things that are happening. And um, there's a whole bunch of, policy people and people at the top who all they care about is, well, we don't have test scores and we don't know how much kids are losing right now as opposed to what they're gaining. And the last piece I would just say on that is to your, to all of your point, like, I, I don't like the word innovation. I've never liked the word innovation. Um, I, I think that, you know, I don't, some people think it's innovative. We've always had mentors in our schools for our kids from for the last 20 years from what we, and we've always centered on building strong relationship and making sure people belong and that they have connection. And so when we went out in March, drill like success, we went out, we've been virtual ever since, you know, we went out, I think March 16th was our last day in buildings. We've still been out. We have maintained and 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 uh, increased this connection because we already had the structures in place to make sure that kids weren't lost and that they were connected. And, you know, and I don't want to minimize their significant challenges. We've a bunch of our families have, have, you know, have very fragile living situations and, and economic situations. And so that is a struggle, but because we're connected, we can help and support them. And that's not innovative. Like the idea of a child having a mentor is not innovative. But no one, no one does it in the country. None of our schools do it. And so it's not really about like making up something new. I think it's about doing the things we know actually work. Because most people just don't do those things. It reminds me of um, a time when I was with Larry Rosenstock while I was still at High Tech High. And he was watching me present in front of a large group and um, came off and, and he said, you know, good job please do not ever refer to high tech high as cutting edge again. <laughs> um, that is not what we are about. Um, we are about getting great stuff. A lot of stuff which we've known since back to whatever, you know, time in history. Let me um, put, um, I think it's a good uh, time to just try and connect two other things. One is we are recording, uh, which grows out of what you guys have been saying. It, it We are recording on the day after uh, Howard Fuller turned 80 years old. Um, and uh, he um, said on, on the second charter float chat here, um, how when he looks at New Orleans, um, while there were good things that happened, sure, certainly, he also sees just the huge missed opportunity because we could have gotten so much more done, right? Um, but Pat, to your question, you know, a lot of the issues out of New Orleans that, that um, I think Howard was putting his finger on were related to trust. Right? Um, who's going to be able to do these things? What direction exactly are we going in? And the fact that we didn't have the level of trust that we would have wanted probably, you know, resulted in far less change, positive change happening than I would have otherwise. The second, you know, the main theme is, you know, I've just got all these books about, you know, failure to disrupt, rewiring education, you know, this sense, you know, that of, of dispiritedness about, you know, charter schools not offering the level of innovation, you know. Uh, as as we would have wanted, um, how do we tackle this moment so that we can really capitalize on on what Howard believes to be a huge moment of opportunity now? How do we do it in such a way as that we can have the level of trust that we need? How much of it is really school specific, and each individual organization's got to figure out what these new things are, and it's context specific and it's culturally sensitive, and all this. And how much of it is, wait a second, there are things that are impeding us. And a part of the innovation is can we come together in new ways and become enough of a political force to be able to push things open both for ourselves and, and you know, for broader public education? So, whoever wants to jump in, I hope that's a good prompt and take it whatever direction you would like. Pat, did you want to go first or? How do we capitalize? How do we, right, 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 right. How do we not I'll, miss this opportunity? It's just, it's, I, I, you know, okay. I'm going to go first. So that you can pick it apart, you know? I'm going to go first. Here we go. So, so listen, 
we've got kids that are, um, you know, they've got all the content laid out in front of them. They've got their computers at home. They've got their internet and they, you know, see what the teacher wants them to do. They look across a week's worth of work. It's Monday night. They do an all nighter. They do everything. And the next day they're a little tired. They don't check into the class at morning, but all their assignments are there for the entire week. It gets to be Friday and that teacher comes forward and they're like, well, I'm giving this kid an F. Give them an F. Why are you giving them an F? Uh, because they didn't show up on Tuesday at 9.01 a.m. to 9.14. But we're looking at all their assignments. They're right there, right? Like they've done the work. They know the test. Do you want to give them a little test? You think, you know, maybe somebody else in their family did the work? I, how we take advantage of this moment is to recognize that the adults have been set up to do what they do over and over and over. And we keep talking about disrupting learning for kids as if we have to give them something different. Well, we gotta reshape the minds of the people that are delivering well, to kids, yeah. right? And so, you know, between grades that are some artificial construct that we put out mm -hmm. and course sequences and seat time, mm -hmm. you have stuck people in between these bookends that they can't break out what they can do. Right. They can't break out how kids can do it differently. And so I'm probably not answering your question, but somehow we have to remap this. Right. Almost. We need to all collectively go and say we're done with seat time. Right. Everybody join us. No, strike it out. Let it be gone. You want to have proof of why, you know, someone has learned something, then we can use. There, there are many ways to get that proof that doesn't have to do with hours of sitting in a class. Right. So so I think that that the disruption has to be aimed at the policies and the regulations that mean that even people that come into this work with different views are forced to take the same steps as everybody else. I think that's number one. Number two, I think that disruption in, in many industries is fueled by the jumping of generations. Right. Like you've got, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old people that are running something and then the 20 somethings come in. But education is never like that because we see every successive um, college educated group coming in year by year. And so it's so small that the shifting in thinking isn't dramatic enough between the people that are running things and the people that are delivering. And so, you know, what I, I, I have a lot of friends of alumni, I'm like, come back and work with us because I need people that were close to being recipients of what we've done coming in to tell now other adults, you know, now, cause they're, you know, 21, 22, 23, yeah, this wasn't as good as you thought it was, right? And recognizing that I've got to give them the tools to do so because most of our alumni think that we are, you know, the best things in sight, right, right? But, but really having them say, when I went to college, I had this, and this is why it was great. But somehow we've got to figure that out because I think education is so slow because ideas aren't coming in from really people that are that distant or distant enough from the work. I think if, if I get a, a little bit of what I think Pat is talking about, and I totally agree, um, the social scientists call it institutional isomorphism, and I call it the Blade Runner problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so like I, I like movies, you know, uh, and Blade Runner, which is based on Phil K. Dick's uh, Do Aliens Dream uh, Do Androids Dream Electric Sheep is like a, a, a defining vision for the future, right? Like the cars in the sky, the climate's all over the place, you know, whatever. And that movie was so brilliantly rendered that people were just like, you know, I'm going to do my movie in that version of the future. And so for like 30 years, people are basically just adopting the vocabulary of Blade Runner to do their movies, right? And so um, <clears throat> in one respect, that makes it a lot easier to do your movie. In another respect, it means every movie over time is increasingly more similar, right? And so I kind of highlight that to, to say back to this point about, about the, you know, the F word of this conversation, innovation, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it, that... Some people look at the, again, like the public policy power to charter as a thing to innovate, right? As like, as like a launch pad. I think what, not like what, we're, what we shouldn't be aiming for necessarily is like sparkles. What we should be aiming for is difference, right? And that is the thing. So like, so the, the sector, I guess, you know, like broadly, Bits and, and and like the focus on math and language arts course as a, as a part to 
has a role to play in this. And certainly I'm a person who supports literacy and numeracy and annual assessments. In particular, I support annual assessments because if they go away, a lot of charter renewals are gonna be in a lurch, which is an unintended consequence of the waivers of the spring. So just throw that out there because that's the thing, you know. Um, but the over time, like we just got into a, a tight vocabulary of what it meant to be a good charter school, right? And that thing, like, and, and we've got really good at doing that. And like the iterations are small, but and but they're impactful for like hundreds of thousands of kids across the country in in wildly positive ways. But they don't bring much difference into into the the universe. And so one of the things I think we should just you know. Let's think about innovation as as a bias towards difference, right? And then what are all the things like like what are all the problems we can solve in the moment, like what while doing that? And how, again, I keep bringing it back because this is my day job. How does the act of putting the, the third like leg on that triangle give us like better support, more support, more diverse support, right? More people who feel like they got the school they wanted. Right, instead of the school that we wanted to give them. Um, this one, one little kind of sound bite on this. I was talking to somebody about this. I want to make sure I hit it the right way. You know, <clears throat> um, I've basically been to every kind of school I could go to, but I didn't go to a charter school because there weren't any when I went to school, right? So uh, private schools value their oldness, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part, like people look at charter schools and charter schools value their newness, right? The aspects of new, like the approach, the approach to data, the, the you know, the results orientation, whatever. Like district schools value like their hooks in community um, for good and ill, which is why you can have a conversation with somebody in, in Newark who whose grandmother, mother, brother, cousin went to a school with 10% proficiency, but they ride or die for it because of the football team. You know, and so like you can you can think of that like poor, like, you know, ill or it's awesome, but it's real. Right. And and I think we could we could use this bias towards difference to turn up the community some more. Right. In, in a way that helps amplify those other things I was talking about. Can I um, uh, I'm excited to be here with you, Darrell, and you said something, but you said it very quickly and a little bit in passing. I want to go back to it because when Pat was speaking and she was talking about some of the constraints we have about doing the right thing, I put in that bucket one of the most significant constraints, our uh, sort of national testing regimen, quite frankly. And the, the belief and expectation that, you know, whether it be one year or 1.5 years of growth on very narrow math and reading exams in only certain grades, it, you know, is the, the gold standard and it drives all of the behavior and everything is completely constraining and confining us around doing what we need to do and what's best for kids. And... I'm really trying to be open. And so in my view, like the pandemic is like this perfect opportunity to sort of set those aside for a little bit, do what we need to do to really serve kids. Um, and and I'm, tr I'm trying to be really open to people who make really compelling arguments about, yeah, but like those are, exams are what helped all of us see the inequities and and not hide them anymore and bring them out of the shadows and whatnot. And so I'm really trying to figure out, is there like an in-between here? Because I really do believe they're constraining most people's choices, behaviors, and ability to meet the, the, the needs of kids. And I'm not sure, honestly, that testing for the next couple of years, first of all, I'm 100% convinced it's not best what's for, for our kids in terms of a social, emotional, mental health approach, number one. Number two, the expend, what we have to expend as schools to figure out how to do those exams in this time and the stress about that is crazy. And so I guess my wondering is like, if we just didn't do them for a couple of years, just a couple of years, I mean, do we really think things are gonna change that much in that time? Are we really yeah. gonna learn anything? And and is the is the trade-off too great? It's, to a, it's a, so, so I, I mean, the answer is yes. No, no, I mean, <laughs> look, <laughs> so, you know, uh, so at, at 50 can like, you know, our, our folks have like fought for these things for a long time with the underlying rationale that you raised, right? Which is that like in their absence, 
millions of kids of color were, were, were absolutely getting screwed by like underperforming, you know, uh, education systems across America. And that, but like you make the case of charters, you make the case for choice, you make the case for deep for, for teacher eval or any of these other things, however you feel about them, like that it's, it's just rooted at a baseline in that transparency. Right. right? Um, at the same time, like, so, 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 so we think they're important. Right. And, um, at the same time, we, we completely acknowledge the, the fact that they have had, that they are a drag on the very same creativity we've, we've been sort of talking about, right? And I think the one of the, one of the questions of that, and then there's like a, like a, a little addendum to it, is just about, is about sort of, is about trust, right? It's about intent. So there are people that we know don't want these things in place, not because they want people to more flexibly approach the problem, but because they want to be able to hide the problem. Yeah. Right? And and so so we 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 are like dealing with that, you know, like on a on a day to day basis. So I, I just think it's important to kind of highlight that. The uh, the addendum is that, you know, Mark, who's, who's my boss, um, another person like my esteemed guest, who's far and I am, we co-wrote this paper called Measure Everything, um, and it was just about like what what opportunity to to sort of like look at success do we have in this window? And we were kind of like, look. You know, in our network, parents are saying, all right, we were fine with giving you this the the spring off, but I want to know where my baby is, you know? And so, like, we sort of advocated for, you know, like, if you want it, go get it. Like, free, you know, get a diagnostic, find out where your kid is, you know? Um, and then for the reasons I just described, we're like, we still think the annual assessment is, is important, even if there are no sanctions, because the ritual matters and because the information matters. But the, the third thing, which I think is probably the most important thing, again, another place for charters to think about, innovate, you know, do because you can, right? Is that um, like annual assessment data is very important if you are like a district leader or a state leader and you want to intervene or you want to like distribute resources. Nominally important to parents, like parents want to know if they, they want to know if kids are on grade level, you know, whatever. But there are all kinds of other information that um, like, like assessment information that is more important to kids and families than that. Right. So for, for instance, behind me, which you cannot see is a bike that's been on a trainer forever. Right. If if the head unit isn't on, I'm not getting on it. Right. Because because my Strava matters a great deal to me. Right. Like that is my information. Right. And so right now, like uh, Pat, you, you sort of talked about it with the kid who's killing it on Monday. So again, rest of the week free. Then I think you talked about it a little bit, too. The the, ver the the fact that people are in this mode of having to learn everywhere, right? For good or ill, to me presents this great opportunity of like, how do I advance the instincts of that in a way that articulates to like success, like success, um, uh, uh, the accrual of rewards in a traditional K-12 framework, you know? So like, if I can learn French on my own, I can demonstrate it on this app, like, why don't I get credit for it? That kind of thing. Like, I, I think, I think, that is a, uh, an incredible place to think about that gets us like, you know, to this place you're talking about where it's like, yeah, I'm not constrained by the annual assessment, right? Still right. gives us information that we want. Right, right? and yeah. I, I'm sure Pat has these, we do. Like we already, again, we don't need to make these things up. We have them. I'm sure Pat, you have them. Like we have literally, you know, worked with the people who made Smarter Balance to build a whole rubric that's valid, reliable, that gives our families, our kids, our teachers day-to-day -day information about exactly where our kids are with real feedback and PD attached to it and all of that. But no one cares because it's not the state test, you know? And so I go into these charter renewal hearings and I've got that and all my kids going to college, college persistence data, like like well-being measures and the the authorizer's like we don't care about any of that we just care about those damn test scores you know and yeah. and if they're similar to the district they're like well why do you exist then we're like well all these other things you know so i don't know about like I, yeah, I'm with you. But uh, first of all, we know when our kids are learning and we know when they're not regardless of whether or not we have the test. Yes, I, I, I have been um, a supporter of testing because we want to know how kids are doing versus others. Sure. But, you know, 
a lot of that is because we get a state report card and we want an A because, you know, those were the students that we were. And so, again, it comes down to me for the things that we put out as values for regulation. If my state report card is made up of dual enrollment and park testing and attendance and whatever, even if that doesn't work for kids, people are going to drive toward those aspects of it. And that's the problem. And that's what's constraining really, you know, innovation for a bad word or difference or, or being different. And we've got to deal with it. Right. Um, I, I think that for me, when I think about our schools and I've been saying this for a while, I've been saying this for at least two years when I discovered Amazon Fresh and I have not been in a grocery store since. <laughs> Because I at 11 p.m. and groceries are on my doorstep at 6 a.m. And, you know, there might be a little bit of a day delay with the pandemic and all. But I would say to people and I say to people in friendship, OK, I want groceries at this time and I can get them. Right. And I'm I'm, I'm relatively old. I might be the oldest person on this this call right now. But the, the point is that our kids have grown up with this right? Where they have their phones with them from, from all time. Most of them have them from time they're in middle school, some even when they're in upper elementary. And if they want to know something, if I want to know something, I'm looking it up right in that instant, right? A moment doesn't go by without me having that knowledge. And yet we have continued to set up schools from Monday through Friday, eight to four or seven to three or whatever it is. And my hope is, and we've known though, we've known about the Amazon Freshers, we've known how we as adults have operated to access whatever we want, whenever we want it, particularly information and knowledge, right? But we haven't allowed that to our kids. They can do it for entertainment, yep. but they can't do it for learning, right? They can do it for entertaining, they can't do it for learning. So, and again, I go back to the adults, what's wrong with us? Like we, our kids shouldn't have to wait till 10 years from now when they're actually controlling things to be able to get it. And my hope with the pandemic, this terrible pandemic that we all acknowledge, right, has been devastating for life and economy and other things, is that if there's anything that comes out of it, is that we move faster to having proven that some kids are learning. Yeah. And if we do, yep. if don't sweep that under the carpet. If we don't use tests to say, oh, wait, it was only 18% and now it's 17 and a half. Yeah, but 10% of those kids were in the, didn't do it before, yeah. right? right? Yeah. How do we pull that out and how do we amplify it and how do we say it works? Because I've got students on IEPs. I've got some autistic students. I have a, a family member who sent me a video and she said, I was so worried that my child would lose and they're doing better, right? And so we've got to find a way to, to get that out to people so that we can make the change now and not have to wait for our own Blade Runner, you know, 2021, but it's 2042 because we haven't gotten there yet. Right. It's a very good movie. Guys, I, I would just, I would, I would love to like stay out of the way of this and just let it keep going for another couple hours. But, um, uh, to put uh, some kind of bookend on this, right? Let's let's give each you guys like two minutes um, to, to to wrap up. I want to just um, uh, and my question is really, um, I personally think that there's a very important combination of things that need to happen with individual schools running and com and, and taking territory wherever we can, taking advantage of the opportunity. Uh, get our settlements or however you want to describe it. The other thing that's really important, I think, is we got to get others from outside of charter school space to be commanding territory as well. What, however, we can get them the freedom to do with what they want to do. And then once we've got it, we got to get our acts together to figure out how we now redraw borders to like be, be able to give a, a whole heck of a lot more space for everybody to go forward in this. My concern is that the conversations within the charter world uh, on those two things you know, encouragement to individual organizations, go do it, you do it, I'm doing it. Hey, by the way, what are we, are those things happening? Is there something that charter folk or other organizations should be doing? And then also like, you know, what are these things that we should be advocating for more broadly? It's gonna require discussion. So just to wrap things up, is there something that we should be doing right now to be taught, to be stimulating the conversations, building the commitment, being at one another's back so that th this moment that Howard, you know, is identifying, you're all identifying as a, is a, is a key one. We're not looking back at 10 years from now, 15 years from now, as perhaps the biggest you know, missed opportunity in a generation. Okay, all right, I'll, all right, I, I hate uncomfortable pauses. 
I'm going to, I'm going to answer a slightly different question because like we, we have people who run schools and they, and they can talk to that uh, uh, in, in a way that is much more elegant than, uh, than I can. Um, to me, there is a, a separate item that um, every charter school and every school, frankly, in America should have on its, um, on its docket right now. And that is uh, graduating people who are able to um, discern the difference between truth and fiction and who are uh, interested in making sure that we continue as a republic in a way that is not um, destructive and divisive but that uh, brings us together around the highest ideals of what the American experiment is supposed to be about. And, uh, you know, I think last week we saw what happens when that doesn't happen. Um, and uh, I, I think every educator, every person who's got the ability to think about how to make our children more resilient against the false um, and more durable against the inherently sort of like divisive algorithms of social media platforms should put that right up at the top uh, because we're, we're gonna, there, there's certainly lots of other things that are uh, incredibly important and, and educators across the country of all the hooks have a lot to do, but, uh, but you gotta do this too. That is the, my closing thought. Jed, I think I can build on that. And I um, like the idea of giving Pat the last word um, and say, um, you know, I I agree with you, Darrell. And I think that the types of schools that I think Pat and I are running and designing um, actually achieve what you're talking about. When you, when you focus on educating a whole human being and you don't just focus on math and reading results, but you actually focus on thinking and the big skills and problem solving and collaborating and working together like that is achieving the goal that you are talking about especially you know and for us in a in a diverse by design community um and so i don't think we're doing it perfectly but i think we're doing it well and i think it's consistent with what we know about the science of learning and what we need to do to have um uh, you know, equitable environments. And so I think the challenge I would say in the charter sector is, um, you know, we came into being and have really thrived by being really good at the efficiencies of running school, like being really excellent at running schools in ways that a traditional sort of more bureaucratic system wasn't. And I think there's a lot of fear in the sector about what it would mean to shift our, our pedagogy and our approach to what Darrell is bringing up. Um, and, you know, because, oh my gosh, how am I gonna get my charter approved? How am I gonna get my next one open? How am I gonna get the funding, which is based on these very narrow metrics. And so I think we need the courage to create the schools Darrell is talking about, which is is um, scary for the adults because they're worried about losing the existing schools they have or not being able to open more if they don't play by the rules of the system, um, which are are confining. All right. Well, you know, it is scary for the adults. It's scary for the adults in some ways because we want to say to kids, here's what's fact and here's what's knowledge and here's what's evidence and consume it how I told you to. And we see where that got us last week. Right. I mean, we've got to teach the powers of discernment and help kids to understand. But moreover, we have to allow them to consume knowledge and information. Right. That they can digest when, where, and how they choose to, and we need to give them credit for it. And what we need to do is to take our curriculum and our programs and make it accessible to them, whether they're coming to the schoolhouse or they're staying at home or they're at the library in ways that they can get it in, in whatever, I've, I've got a whole bunch of devices around me, right? In all the ways that they can and give them credit for it. And it's not just about making it available. Them getting credit for it means that we've got to take on the political machines that want to capture kids between eight to five or nine to four or seven to three from Monday to Friday. We've got to take them on. We've got to capture the ones that say, wait a minute, I did a beautiful job with my legislation and kids have to take four years of Spanish and three years of, 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 of gym or whatever it might be. And we've got to take that on because that is how we will deliver learning 
where, when, and how, and give kids credit, which is what it's gonna look like for them in college anyway, or whatever else they choose to do. In work, it's going to look that way, right? And we all know that now as adult America debates, are we ever going back to the office? Yeah. Let's put our kids in a position to be part of the world that is barreling down on us like a runaway train. And so that's what I hope that every school will do. But certainly, yeah. Sharp, let's get started. Well, guys, um, I, I'm just thrilled by this conversation. I've learned so much from it. I would just say that this, uh, this great disconnect happens at a moment when charter schools are under attack. And I think we felt as though there's like less oxygen in all the rooms where we are at this moment that it's happened. Um, and yet, if there's ever a moment that we want the charter sector to have as much oxygen, you know, to have the energy, to have the creativity, uh, it is that. And it's my sense that oxygen comes into rooms uh, through through who you invite. And when you invite such stunning people as yourselves, uh, you just you can breathe. And I can tell you, I could I've just breathed through this entire uh, hour together. So I just thank you for everything that you guys are doing for your schools. I thank you for what you're doing more broadly in the sector. And I really thank you for coming together for Charter Folk um, and this conversation today. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye, folks.